With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Special Operations Covert Ops Espionage The Team House with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Team House. This is episode 124. I'm Jack Murphy, here with co-host David Park. Today, we have a special guest in studio, Ken Gaudette. Ken served in the 173rd Alerps the Long Range Reconnaissance uh, Unit, predecessor to the Ranger Companies in Vietnam, uh, then the 82nd Airborne Division, and then he went over and served in the Rhodesian Light Infantry, and then 44 Pathfinder Company of the South African Defense Forces before becoming a private security contractor and working on uh, rescuing children from foreign countries. So we're really honored to have Ken here in studio today, joining us on a Friday morning. Thanks so much for coming in today, Ken. My, my pleasure, Jack. Just to, uh, I was with a 173rd Airborne. I was in a line company. I was not in the, in the LERP company. I was in a LERP company in the 82nd ah, Airborne okay. when I came back to the States. Thanks for clarifying. My pleasure. So uh, I think the first thing I'd like to start off with, we, we asked most of our guests to tell us a little bit about their origins and their upbringing and, and tell us where you sure. grew up and what was sort of that path that took you towards <laughs> Vietnam? Um, I was uh, born and raised in San Francisco, um, high school in San Francisco in 1968, graduated high school, went to college for a very short time, about six weeks or so, um, and... Um, Decided that I needed to uh, get to do something else, and I knew the draft was coming, and I uh, joined the army. Went down and joined the army, and from day one, I wanted to go to an airborne unit. I had seen the Green Berets, I had seen the Devil's Brigade, and uh, you know, I wanted that uh, to be in an airborne unit from day one. Went to basic at Fort Lewis. Lewis and went to Fort Gordon, um, South Carolina, um, and yeah, Fort Gordon in Georgia, and went through Airborne AIT. From there, I went to uh, Fort Benning for jump school, 
After drum school, I was picked and selected for NCO school and went through the NCOC course, which is a 24-week uh, course, 12 weeks of training, and then you do 12 weeks OGT. I was in the Army uh, nine and a half months, and I was a Sergeant E5 ah. with rank for uh, E5 and responsibilities in E5. I was then uh, sent to Vietnam. I uh, went, got in Vietnam 1970, and was sent to the 173rd. Went through jungle school, which is like 10-day course. Uh, you go through familiarization, and then you go get into, went to our uh, Bravo company, First Survival Third, up in, out of LZ Uplift in the Tukoi area, and we were doing pacification with the Vietnamese. That consisted of living in a small water site, secure area outside the LZ, running patrols, hawk patrol, what we call hawk patrols, in and out of our tactical zone with the Arbans, with the uh, South Vietnamese troops, in small four, six-man teams within the, within the platoon. And I did that, and it was, uh, you know, constant booby traps, constant patrols, constant guys coming in, guys getting wounded, guys getting killed in action, leaving, and did that for my tour. And how long were you in Vietnam for? I was in Vietnam for 11 months. And what, what area was this again? This is LZ Uplift, which is above Fumi between uh, Quignon and Bong San. Okay. Um, the headquarters was up at uh, uh, English, LZ English, North English. Uh, that's the LZ English was second bat. Um, fourth bat was up at LZ North English. Third bat was at LZ Uplift with the brigade. So I, I got to, like, if you take us back in time a little sure. bit to paint the picture, what was it like for you as a young man, like, going out on your first patrols outside the wire? Oh, I was uh, I was 19 years old. Uh, I was uh, I was then assistant squad leader, and I had an experienced sergeant that would take you out, and tell you the areas uh, that you would we would patrol. Say, I'd say maybe a total area of five to ten k's. And what you're doing was looking for any signs of the enemy. You might do ambushes at nighttime. It was uh, it would you were trained well. But it was scary as hell. Yeah. Yeah. Because you had a lot of booby traps. Every place you had to work, you had a uh, point man in front, slack man behind him. That would point man was looking all the way at the ground, looking up above, and slack man would be doing his overwatch and close together communications. You might have rear security guy. Stop, follow, look, catch your booby trap, call it in. You might, there's so many other things that's going on. It was heavy, po heavily populated with uh, the local Vietnamese. You, and if we knew if there's something was going to happen, if your Arvins that were with you were carrying their arms at the ready. Majority of the time, they just carried them over their shoulders, had a radio on, and weren't, they weren't, they were. CIDG forces. Mm -hmm. They were what we call rough puffs. And uh, we didn't uh, work with super trained troops. They were more of a local popular force. Yeah. So, and you had your squad that had been together with the majority of guys had been off search and destroy and they all knew each other. And 
we as young NCOs came in and we, we were given the charge and after maybe four or five patrols and you would have your own team and you would be in charge of your team and you would take them out. You would go to a certain area. How, how did you, and I know that you were sort of trained while you were there, but being a young NCO, I mean, getting promoted before you got into theater, how did you feel when you were handed over leadership of a team that probably was a bit more experienced than you, right? Very, majority of times they were experienced more. There was a lot of animosity between the older soldiers. Um, the guys of Staff Sergeant, Sergeant First Class. But because of that time in Vietnam, because so many NCOs were gone, David Hackworth and um, Colonel Millett developed this NCOC program, Non-Commissioned Officer Candidate Course program. And that's where we were picked from either AIT or drum school and you show leadership capabilities when you're the little squad leader or mm -hmm. whatever that you could you could lead, you could go somebody, and you basically prove yourself to your team and to your members and the guys on a platoon that you can read a map, that you know what's going on, that you're able to take care of. And the guys put their faith on you. And you either lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way. You know? Yeah. And uh, some guys didn't make it out in the field and they stayed back in the rear and they were great in the rear. But there were other guys that excelled out there, and we have a number of Medal of Honor recipients that are graduates of NCO school. And uh, it was uh, it was it, it was tough though. Yeah, um, my best friend was a draftee guy. Was in the army for a short period of time. He's NCOC just like me. He's three weeks behind me, and uh, he he would have been the next our next permanent platoon sergeant. Uh, had he not got wounded real bad, yeah, and sent back to the states. That's a really interesting program because you expect the you know like the young butter bar to come out of college and, and bake with that, you know yeah. yeah, and to not really have that kind of experience. Oh yeah, but, but it's very different for an NCO, you know, to to have that. It's it's you learn. It's like okay, I'm going to make the pay. I get to you know I get to do this and. It, until it's down to that point, no, no, this is your team, these are your four guys, you got to make sure they have everything, you got to make sure they're well prepared, they're trained, they know the radio codes, they know this and that. And later on in my, in my time as a soldier, I learned things that I should have thought about in the American Army that I made sure that they were done later on when I am in Rhodesia in South Africa, that immediately, yeah, it was like, okay, why, why aren't we practicing this? Why do we, we need to do that? And uh, so it was a, it was, it was a curve over the period. And I couldn't vote. I was, you know, I was only 19 and 20 years old. Were, yeah. uh, were there any significant uh, firefights that kind of stand out in your mind from that time frame or, or, or booby traps that you guys ran into? I'd say they, uh, let me put it this way. I got, I was awarded my CIB within two weeks. <laughs> uh, uh, the first, uh, booby trap ran into, uh, was my, the sergeant in charge was wounded. I, uh, they say I saved a guy's life with a sucking chest wound. And it was like that we medevac them. I had to make sure I knew where we were going, where the blue line was, the medevac calling was real, and they lifted off and then we had to get back to the base. And that was just myself and two other guys. 
I'll always remember it. You never forget it. Nighttime, we got ambushed one time. Things things happen. You know, you got to you have to remember. And I learned then, you are in the enemy's backyard. Mm -hmm. You're just visiting. Mm -hmm. You're just going to be there a short time. So you have to learn to adapt and learn to get the guys back safe and protect your team and get the mission done. It's interesting also that you said that your soldiers, your, your indigenous soldiers, like normally they would patrol with the rifles over but when they were at the ready like they like they knew from their village oh, they knew yes. from the grapevine that something was coming down did you feel as though you could trust those soldiers uh, did you feel safe working with them no no not at not at any point because you can't control them we couldn't even raise an american flag in our compound we rose we had the vietnamese flag so we, of course, as Americans, what we did is we rose our state. We had our state flags fly. You know, it's like okay, it's Viet and we respected the Vietnamese and we worked with them. But to say trust, no. When you're going out and the guys, you know, in the shoulder arms and this, and he's got his radio on. I'm I'm talking a transistor radio to his ear. <laughs> oh, like listening to music. <laughs> listening to music. It's a whole different story than they're switched on or this and that. Right. I've always felt well, they were infiltrated, and you, you don't know, you can't. And you're just going out for an overnight patrol, or just uh, ambush patrol. Right. It's like, uh, wait, I'm not going with him. And there's pictures of me putting them them over here, and our guys were over here. It's just, yeah. you know, you, but you have to do it. That's your part of pacification. Other battalions in the brigade, we're on search and destroy, we're not on pacification, but 1st Battalion at that time, within our area, was on um, uh, pacification. But it sounds like this was a pretty hot area, like you were getting into regular contact. Oh yeah, you would you would do something. You would hit a booby trap, you would get fire, you would get mortared. I can remember playing uh, volleyball with the Vietnamese and the mortars were coming in, and we were counting. Well, gee, we can make this point before we got to get undercover because, <laughs> man, we got to beat them, you know. And it's, it's uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, could be hairy. And the 122 would go off and back in the base and LZ uplift, and we would get the get the log stat and get our compass out and and so let's get the hell out of here so we can catch, you know, get out of the base and get more to our little our larger site. We felt very secure in our area that we were as yeah. opposed to being back at the base yeah yeah that's fascinating <laughs> i mean yeah the talking about moving with one other guy at night through the jungle to make it back to the base must have been i had two other two other guys harrowing yeah. experience it was well he knew where you were and you had to get it done and you have to remember, you didn't have a choice in the matter <laughs> you have no choice and between that area where you were hit to where the base was, there might be three or four ambush patrols. So you got to make sure you're in contact, gotcha, make sure you're yeah, moving. Yeah. I'm on the trail. I'm going to get there. And then once you get back to your logger site, you have to defuse the booby trap that's on the gate that you put on. It was always had a grenade on the gate. When the gate opened, the little bamboo gate opened, you always had a grenade there. You had to defuse that, make sure it was safe, and get back in. Wow. Every day. <laughs> How was, how was the point man or a point man created? Was it somebody who volunteered for that job? Because I imagine it's a high-stress job. High-stress, 
Uh, many times I walk point. Really? Because as a sergeant, I could lead my men and I could do it. A lot of times you wore your pants very tight so you could feel any any grip lines, anything. You strap everything down so you could feel anything. You had a slack man literally in your back pocket, mm -hmm. and he would be overwatching you. He, He'd be covering long while you he, were focused he, on the he's, he's looking ahead. He's scouting. He's looking ahead. You're down there. You're listening. You're looking for anything. At thing, And you're also looking on the trail. There might be a palm frond that's... And you're making me think now, Jack. Make a palm frond in a figure eight. That's something that's not supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And you go, okay, there's something here. Let's take a second. Take a second. You're looking at the bushes. You're looking at here. You're looking at the the booby traps that we used to see in training. That that's exactly what they look like. The physical booby traps with punji pits, spikes, and all this type of stuff, or grenade, or you know, I did a patrol with a lieutenant one night, and I pointed out that it's probably a, it's a probably heavy-duty shell. So what does he do? Of course, he takes his flashlight out, shows it in the middle of the rice paddy, and uh, we got in a little bit of an argument at, at that time. And uh, it was just like, no, it's 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 a booby trap. And then we go around it, and then you you would know where it was, and you mark it or blow it up the next day. But you. you you just as sly, as as a point man, you got to do it, and of course they would say, "Oh no, you're not supposed to." You're the sergeant and stuff like that. No, no, I got to, you know, my guys have to see that I will do it, and then other guys would say, "No, no, I'll take, I'll take point." So was it? So you just did it as a volunteer? I, because that's what I was wondering. Well, you're was why as the NCO? I, yeah. Well, but as the NCO in right. charge, I assume, like, why are you walking point? But it's to show your men that you can, you'll, you're going to do it also. It, it's not something you think about, it's something you do. Yeah. Who's going to be, I'm doing point. Okay, Kodak, you're walking slack. Let's go. You're doing security. My rear, I never, ever remember turning around and looking at my rear security guy to see if he was looking behind us. I knew instinctively that's what his job was, you know. And when we went out on patrol, we went out, say, for a long time, if guys had to carry extra batteries or extra this or stuff in their ruck, we never had, oh, well, let me check your ruck. I want to make sure. You knew they had two of these, four of these, three of these. We had a basic load, and I we knew every guy had their own stuff. What was your basic load like? Carried 25 magazines, carried four to six grenades, maybe, a white foss. NCOs had two magazines, 20 round mags, two magazines of tracers <laughs> that you would use for spotting right. certain uh, color grenades. You had your flares, and then your day's food, your lerps, or whatever you could, whatever you could have, whatever you could carry, and your bedroll. The reason I laughed when yeah. you said the magazines of tracers is because I had read a lot of Vietnam after action reports and had repeated that in Baghdad, and it didn't work out so well for me. When I could have been use, using night vision and IR lasers. but Because tracers go two ways, right? Tracers go. <laughs> but the green ones are the ones that are coming back at you. But yeah, yeah, because we use the red tracer. But yeah, it was when you're marking for the Cobras or the choppers coming in, you're going to use your tracers. Yeah, but, but it's yeah. also pointing out your location. You ha Oh, yeah, you're <laughs> yeah. going to have to adapt. Yeah. Yeah, but usually they know where you are anyway. Yeah. 
So they have the upper hand. Yeah. <laughs> 11 months in Vietnam. I mean, by the time your tour there kind of came to its conclusion, I mean, how did you feel about the war and about the army at that time? Because you stayed in when a lot of guys got out at that time. I actually uh, took a short in Vietnam, re-enlisted, came back to the States, got married, and went back to Vietnam. Um, it was... I, my own personal feelings, I felt that we had a job to do and we needed to do as best as we could. Um, and look, coming from San Francisco, living in San Francisco, uh, we had to get through the demonstrations to be basically inducted into the service. And so it was, yeah, on my mind and I came back and did a little thing at City College of San Francisco and people treated me like crap, but that was just the way it was. It was, and once the first, after I got back to the States, I wanted to go back to Vietnam, you know, because it, it just, it was better than a stateside, stateside right. building and right. crap that was going on in the States. Because yeah. I was in the riots and all that other type of stuff. It was just, but I thought the war was a thing that we were just, we needed to, uh, uh, we needed to get the job done as best as we could. We were, but we did it with four hands behind, tied behind our back. Mm -hmm. You know, we were given. You know, the the mission wasn't clear. We had everything else to do. The problem is, is we had, we have way too many people that are involved as opposed to just ground troops that are doing doing the actual fighting. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is involved. But yeah. you, you liked the Army enough that you stayed in, and your next yeah. assignment was the 82nd, right? I came back to the 82nd, um, and uh, the first year uh, they they had a long-range patrol company in the 1st in the Brigade, and they sent me to uh, Raider Ricardo School at Fort Bragg, which was four weeks, which was, which was great. It was fun. Um, I really enjoyed the training, and we were doing... Uh, special missions. Our off, uh, one of our officers was had got his direct commission in and the uh, uh, CNC South, so he was highly trained special forces officer. They were doing command time. We served under some ex Sante Raiders, and we were doing cool things. We were walking the Appalachian Trail for a month and a half. You're we training ROTC students and West Point students in repelling and fast helicopter techniques and uh, we did a huge parachute jump in Korea to 1500 people did it did a jump in Korea and uh, it, it, it was again a lot of good jobs a lot of good training and then everything went on till 72 so the cutbacks and that was it it was it was all over and then I got on service yeah yeah, so the, the, at the war's conclusion, when they downsized the military. Yeah. Everybody was sent back. Fifth group come back with their special forces and guys that had been in for a good time, NCOs that had got the rank and officers that had got the rank. They were getting rifted, and it was like you went. I went from a Hawk team leader to an assistant squad leader. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, okay. Now what? Yeah, yeah. You know? Right. And from what you were doing to this is what you're doing. And then my contract was over and I'm done. So I got out. And morale, I imagine, morale in the military was... Absolutely dismal. 
We couldn't wear our uniforms off base. Uh, this was in Fort Bragg. We were fined if we were caught in uniform. And it was just all respect was lost. And everything was, it, it was a very dismal, horrible situation. Yeah. Hmm. And now you find yourself on Civvy Street. And how did uh, how'd that go for you? Uh, luckily, uh, besides, uh, you know, taking cover when a, when they were rebuilding the Transbay Terminal in San Francisco and you hear the loud sounds and you're going through your... Of course, we didn't have the transition programs, things like that. Um, did odd jobs, did, did construction work, did everything else. And then uh, went back to work in the shipyard in San Francisco. Well, went to work in the shipyard in San Francisco as a pipe fitter. Because remember, I left when I was, the, when I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. So turned 21, I was able to vote, I was able to drink, I was able to do everything kind of legally. And uh, so it was good, but I couldn't get a job. I wanted to be a cop. I wasn't the right fit for what they say. And, uh, but I worked, they gave me, I got a good job in the shipyard and that, and that went well. And uh, for a while, then the job's gone, so. And then I answered an ad and I put one of the first ads in Soldier Fortune magazine actually. So yeah. Yeah, that was like the, I think the first issue of Soldier of Fortune right. was about the war in Rhodesia. Right? Correct. Right. And Very first one. And Picked for, it up on a laundromat. <laughs> for some of our, our younger uh, audience members, that's actually uh, Bob Brown's book is right behind you. I am Soldier of Fortune. Right. Uh, Robert K. Brown, the sort of ski on uh, and founder of Soldier of Fortune magazine. I think the first issue is 1979? No, no, no. First issue was 75. 75. It came okay. out, only came out four times a year. Okay. Yeah. And I I had the second personal ad in there. I put my name, my parents' address and phone number in the and, and, and Oh, like, you put... So it, you weren't responding in, to an ad. You put an ad. So I put so an ad in there. Ken Gaudette, yeah. have gun, will travel. That's right. <laughs> And I got the strangest messages. Um, and, but then also from Brown, I bought one of the $5 packets for the Rhodesian Army. Filled it out. And at that time, I, you had to get copies of your certificates from the Army time, jump school, everything else. And you'd have to take them somewhere and they'd make them up. You couldn't fax things and things like that. And I sent them to Rhodesia and I never got a response. So that was in 76, I'd say. Okay. Then the magazine came out. It was four times a year. Then it was bi-monthly. And then it came out monthly for a while. Do you remember some of the responses you oh, got to your ad? Oh, yeah. People, they wanted to rescue their girlfriend. He was 16 years old, and his girlfriend was 12, and he wanted to rescue them, and they wanted to do this. And, can you come over here? We're gonna. We need to do that. It, it was just some strange stuff. I had a, a brief encounter with um, a federal government agency um, about one of the letters that I answered, and it was just okay. <laughs> gotcha. You know, I ended up in Mexico for about a month and a half, which was fun. Based but, on the ad that you placed. Yes. Yeah. Doing some bounty hunting. Uh, doing, doing a job <laughs> on a horse, which was really strange for me, but yeah, I'm from San Francisco. I don't ride horses, but yeah. 
It was great. It was good. I wish I would have kept them because they would make great stuff later on. It'd be, yeah, for but, sure. Yeah, you know, it's just a lot of stuff that that things. But I look back now, putting my parents' address in there was just <laughs> not a smart thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Did anybody ever show up at your doorstep? No. No. Aside no. from the fact. No, 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 no. It was mostly, you know, you get a, you get an envelope and, you know, the one that really stuck out was the guy that wanted to rest to get his girlfriend. And he was 16, he was 12, and she was 12. And he yeah. wanted to rescue her from what her parents. From her parents or right. whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was, I, Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. As parents, there's enough to worry about and plenty to figure out alone. So isn't it nice to find answers? To worry less with people who get it. Saving for college is a journey made better when guided by experience. At collegewell.com, we have expert guidance to get you on the right path. From financial planners to financial aid advisors at colleges nationwide. Visit collegewell.com. We're changing the way families feel about and approach college savings. And I don't know what state it was, but I know we're <laughs> probably not not legal wherever the hell that was. Whatever, <laughs> you know, we'll pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have, I have some newspaper money saved up for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, so no bite initially from the Rhodesian Army in '76. I didn't find out until '79. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They answered. They accepted me. Really? Yeah. From what I understand, there was a problem with the U.S. Postal Service on information coming back going out it was fine coming back they would it stop it. it would stop it wasn't getting to us i was accepted into rhodesian army after i sent the letter and they were just waiting for me to arrive and they'll pay my plane ticket and everything really yeah wow. but i found this out after yeah so i mean how did you end up in rhodesia at the end of the day we with the stuff that was going on and the politics of of the U.S. at the time, uh, President Carter was in charge, um, and then I had a nine-month layoff from the shipyard, and because of Navy contracts and stuff, and I thought, well, it'd be great, maybe I could take a trip overseas. I got some extra money at work, I actually saved a guy's life in the shipyard, and I got enough to, they gave me a very nice, very nice award for uh, saving this guy. So the first thing I did is went out and bought a pistol, and um, I decided that I would go to Rhodesia, or go to South Africa and Rhodesia. Al Venter sent me a card, 
and said, if you ever come over here, bring some cool stuff because you can finance your whole way while you're here. Gerber knives and other little stuff that, that guys and farmers need. So I finally took me about four months to get my visa from the South Africans, and I did. And I got on the plane with all my kit and caboodle and ended up in Johannesburg. So you packed up like your LCE, your web gear from Vietnam? and I packed up some of the stuff. I wish I would have taken more, but I packed up some of the stuff and I actually got my first concealed weapons permit in the uh, airport in Johannesburg. Really? Yeah. Which is really strange. Yeah, it but is really yeah. strange. Yeah. And uh, said, okay, spent about a week in South Africa traveling around with Al. And Al was one of the better, the better journalists at that time. And he says, well, are you, are you going to Rhodesia? I said, man, I'd like to. You know, things are going to change or what? He goes, well, if you do, you'll spend night at this person's house. And then if you go to Salisbury, I'll hook up you with a couple of Army guys. I said, man, that sounds great. Let's do it. So I took, sent me to buy a bridge. I got in a convoy and I went to Bulawayo for three days and then took the train to Salisbury. And uh, in Salisbury, I uh, called the RLI barracks and they transferred me to support commando and two guys came to pick me up. And support commando had just come back from an operation and had some real good success. And I went to a huge piss up and it was a great time. <laughs> And the first election had just happened. Bishop Mosaray was in charge at that time. And the guys are going, so you're going to join, you're going to join, you're going to join. Everything's going to last for about a year, year and a half, till the new government comes in. And I said, well, I don't know, you know, come on, you go, you get this. And uh, the next day I went down to the recruiter, and the recruiter goes, where you been? We've been waiting for you for three years. It was like, okay. He That's goes, hilarious. well, we'll send you out for an interview. You can either go to Gray Scouts, SAS, or to Rhodesian Light Infantry. Well, I don't ride horses again. <laughs> SAS, no way. I was not in any type of shape form. I went into the RLI, and they had, I had, they basically had my paperwork, and the guy goes, uh, Major Cooper says, well, we have a training group that is it's graduating in two weeks and then they're going to the commandos we'll put you in there and i went in and the next day i walked up and i was in an army army thing they gave me all my uniforms and everything and shining my boots and i kind of knew how to shine a boot my first class was the class on how to put a claymore up and the instructor looked at me and he goes american yank i go yeah he goes oh you're probably whatever i said i was just in, in an airborne unit. He goes, okay, you know what these are? I go, it's Claymore. He goes, yeah, show me how to set it up. So I did. And he goes, good, okay, class, that's how you do it. <laughs> and it was, okay. And then these all these guys are talking, and I had no idea what they're talking about because they speak in a Rhodesian slang. It's, it's not a different language, but you just got to get used to it. It's cool, but you just got to get used to it. What are yeah. some of the, the colloquialisms that the Rhodesians use? Uh, let's go grab a graze. Get your grazing irons. What's that mean? Let's go to let's go eat. <laughs> go get your dinnerware. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your slop shot, you're this, the flat dogs are this, you're 
Let's go for a glide. We're going here. Steric. It's like... The flat dogs is alligator, right? Al crocodile. Crocodile. Big what's, difference. What's a glide? Gl any ride. Any type of... Any type of ride. Anything that moves. Yeah. And then you would have other regiments where you're putting sky in your rounds. It's putting air in your tires. <laughs> so it's all... Putting sky in your rounds. Sky in your rounds. Air that. in your tires. I'm using that for now. Yeah. Sky in your rounds. And you go into bright lights, which is Salisbury, and you, it's it's all regional. It's all. What did the troopers say? They're like Owens. Owens, you're an Owen. And that's, that's just a African slang. You do, you're an Owen. Like you be X Ranger, you be X this. It's like that. So, oh, you're an Owen. You know, and the ROI were specifically known. All the guys were Owens. And. And the other thing we got to talk about the RLI before we move on yeah. a little bit is which is, uh, which is the insignia, the the notorious short shorts that we had talked about earlier, the Nutcracker shorts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they would wear their shorts everywhere. <laughs> it could be any day of the week they'd have their shirts on, and they'd say, oh, your shorts. I said, no, nope, I'm sorry, I don't do shorts. And they would do combat operations in their shorts. They would do parachute jumps in their shorts. And they say, well, Ken, what about you? I said, I do not jump in my underwear. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got it. But they were just, and they would wear velscoons, vellies, and that's what, that's what they were doing. That's where, that was their, they would just black up, put their black beautiful on, and they would do their thing. But short shorts aside, like the Rhodesian Light Infantry was no joke. I mean, how many combat jumps do you think they did during the course of the war? We've, we've recorded over 5,000. Yeah, they wow. were going out multiple times a day at one point. One commander did three combat jumps in a day. Um, one of my guys, we went through parachute school at the same time. He was in mortar troop. He has nine combat jumps. I have three combat jumps. Americans, we laugh about them. You know how in America you have yeah. your little... Your mustard stain. You got the mustard stain. Yeah, you need it. I know guys. I know guys... We had guys that when we went to the South African jump school, they had 20 and 30 combat jumps. At, at that point, you may as well just like pin a, ta a, a packet of Hellman's yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> or Grey Poupon. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was like, it, up. It, was, it was an everyday thing. You go on fire force, they'd line stuff up, the, everything would be lined up. It, not that it wasn't a big deal, because it was a big deal, but it was just the concept. I did my first bush trip. I was out six weeks, and luckily my troop officer was an American, Vietnam vet, and he always said to me, he said, Ken, this is not Vietnam, you will not believe it. And then we did the bush trip, we did the scene, we did everything else, and he goes, what do you think? I said, my God, he goes, I know it's great, isn't it? It was, it was a, a soldier's war, it was a corporal's war. There were no, I wouldn't say restrictions, but you all the training that you do and you know, you're putting you're putting it into effect. Yeah, you're able to use it. The skill crafts, this and that, and everybody's you know the the RLI guys were great. The the troopers that I that I was with, they were 18, 18 years old, like I was ten years before, and they're looking at me like, oh man, you're an old topping. You know, you know what's up. You've seen the, you know, oh, yeah, what do you think? I go, hey guys, I'm. I'm new here. I've been here four weeks. You know, they're going, oh, no, no, you're, you're, it's, it's, 
it was it was an amazing experience. How how would a standard combat jump operate? Would you exfil by foot? Would helicopters come in to get you? Depend it depending on a job. Usually, I'll take a typical fire force situation. Salute scouts have a group of say ten to ten to twenty terrorists out. They've got them spotted. They know where they're at. Meanwhile, that night, our head shed is getting everything together. Okay, like this, we got to, our DACs are there. We said, okay, your eagle, your eagle, eagle squad, which is the twenty-four guys in, in the Dakota. There, you line your stuff up. You get your call out. Put your kit on. You're en route. They would drop you, and it was all uh, the airborne development was all so planned. You would. Go ahead, be the stop group, maybe be the driving force, maybe be the line. You would execute, you would leave your parachute there. We jump at 500 feet. Okay. If you like. So there's no point of having a reserve at that point. You'd have a reserve, but it was there. Right. You know, you jump at 500 feet. There were some guys that were jumped lower. Uh, I think the uh, 250 is the lowest, and it was because the pilot messed up. Um, you would do your jump, and you would do the scene. Uh, collect everything up, and then the parachutes would be put on trucks, or you would put them in an assembly point. Helicopters would come in, and they'd evacuate. Or you trucks would come and, and reach you and stuff like that. It was an amazing process to see what they were doing. But like one commando, they came back, they had another call out, they did another scene, they did the three jumps. That's in a day. amazing. It sounds like they had it down to a perf perfected art. Oh, exactly. One... What Des Archer, one of our RLI guys, had 73 combat jumps. You, you were pointing out to me earlier that it's not like in the United States Army, we have like, there's this, it's this big production. Right. Where you're going in the morning and you, oh have, my gosh. you have your static dry rehearsals and blah, blah, and it goes, it's a full, it's a full day event. And you were saying it, for you in, in Rhodesia and the RLI, it was like not a big deal. You just kind of walk up there with your rifle and your kit and you, grab you, a parachute. Right. And go. Your kit would all be laid out. And I can remember in the 82nd, we were doing a six o'clock in the morning jump. You'd start at three in the morning. Right. Two in the morning. It was like, oh, God, and the jump master, which is why I went to jump master school. So I wouldn't have to do all that waiting. And it was, but no, everything was, was done. Okay. You, you know your eagle flights, who's on the eagle flight, who's on stick one, who's on stick two, who's here, who's in charge. So there was, and then you got what position you were going to be in, where you were, and you just put your kit down there and either kept your weapon with you. I think the weapons was right there and covered up, and then when you go, you kitted everybody up, and then you uh, you went. Every, everybody would chip in. Your officers would chip in. Your Everybody did something. Mm -hmm. Um, telling a war story when I did the jump in Mapai and uh, we were the Airborne Reserve for SAS I turned around to put my parachute on and here's General Walls the head of Virginia Security Forces he goes here you go Yank because I used to wear an American flag on my shoulder here you go Yank and I turned around and I said thank you sir and it, here's a what? it was <laughs> you know you step back here's a general the number one man in the service helping with you Thing on it. Good hunting. Have a good, good trip. Good that. And I was like, okay. And the plane that I jumped out of at that time was a World War II DC-3 that had been used at the Battle of Arnhem. 
Yeah, you said it had a, pl a placard on it for Operation little, Market Garden. Little brass plaque on it. <laughs> you know, and you're going, "This is cool. Yeah. This is what I'm. This is what I want to do." Yeah. You know, it cost me a case of beer, but that was still that was still. Yeah. A fun so, part could of you it. tell us about your first combat jump? What was it, what was that like? It was the Mozambique mm -hmm. Mozambique jump? Uh, we flew. We were in the air for about two hours. We left the airfield, and I looked and there. Was Big elephant behind us, which again another Kodak moment, and flying. And we were the airborne reserve as the SAS blew up the bridges. Their bridges were blowing up, and then we went to a forward base where we we're going to organize everybody, and for the raid on Mapai the next day. Um, we had learned we'd been told in our intel report, don't shoot the Africans with the little colored bands in their berets because those are scouts. Or Mozambique National Resistance. Salute Scouts. Salute Scouts, yes. Yeah, and they were. So you're trained to shoot anything that's in front of you once you land. You have your, your kit on and your weapon, your weapon, you're holding your weapon anyway, it's underneath your arm. But as soon as you see something, you take them out. Mm -hmm. And you say, no, no, these guys all have a band. They're going to come and get you and move you in. So we were up. Uh, I paid the dispatcher a case of beer so I could get first in the door, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was it was the best thing. Finally, you're in this the bird. We're hot, this and that, and we finally get to go ahead and we jump. Everything's it's nice twilight. Everything's everything's quiet. We good, and it was it was great. And I finally link up with my record troop. Oh man, it was a great job. He said, "Yeah, it's a case of beer. We get back." I said, oh, "Okay, another case of beer. I mean, we'll we we'll got it." And then we linked up for the raid on Mapai the next day. That's the one that's in the book that people have read, where we lost uh, 16 guys, were shot down, and, and the helicopter next to us. Yeah, it's in yeah. a couple. It was one a commander. Huge, it was like one of the biggest operations of the war, right? It was the biggest one that I that I was in. We had uh, SAS. Uh, the uh, two commandos, and we had recce commandos from South Africa came up, and we hit Mapai, and they had, we were told a regiment of tanks, and we practiced uh, infiltrating T-55 tanks for a couple weeks before that, and uh, then we went in. But yeah, tragically, uh, we had a helicopter shot down right next to us, and we lost 16 RLI engineers and South African pilots. It's like the, it was like the biggest loss of the war mm -hmm. at that time. And we uh, did the attack. SAS got in a hell of a, hell of a punch up. And um, we realized that we were overpowered and we pulled back and then they rebombed. And, and if people go looking, uh, there are... Ken is also an author and wrote articles for Behind the Lines and also Soldier of Fortune. And... Um, might be a little bit hard for you guys to find the article nowadays, but if you're nice, maybe I'll send you one. <laughs> maybe Ken would send you one. Uh, maybe we can I have one line. Maybe yeah. we can find a copy for you. Um, this was it, this was just like super fascinating to read about. And then what was the result of the operation after you guys pulled back like ten kilometers? Correct. for the bombs to come in. Correct. Uh, the next day, we mined, went back on mining missions, and we mined everything with uh, special South African plastic mines. Uh, they couldn't be detected by mine detectors. Really ingenious mines, and we trained on those again for a week. Whenever you would do something like that, you always went out for a training session. And uh, for 
resistance for the uh, to keep for Limo and to keep the uh, opposite side, Mugabe's troops, from being able to infiltrate into Rhodesia. So we mined for a couple of days, and then we closed down the admin base, and they all came back. Yeah. And uh, this picture you sent me a few right. years ago, uh, Ken meeting with then Prime Minister Ian Smith. Right. That was in South Lake Tahoe when he came and visited us. I was on the honor guard. And when... The end happened, and Prime Minister uh, came and spoke to the ROI. Um, he thanked the foreigners that were there for our part participation. And at that time, I'm speaking to him, and I said, Sir, I remember when you were there. And again, he thanked us for our participation and what we did. And I'm just a Lance Corporal and talking to him. He had been a Spitfire pilot during World War II. A lot of in a POW. A lot of people didn't know that. Wow. Great guy. Half his face was burned off, but was frozen. And but just a great politician, a great person. And uh, yeah, people give uh, you know Ian Smith a hard time. Of course, it's a, a <laughs> form of governance we don't really have today, and, and understandably. But I mean, his policy was for a multiracial, yes. integrated government. That's what they were trying to move towards right. at that time. It was supposed to be, we were told the day before the elections, or the day before the results of the elections, we were all brought into an auditorium and representatives from scouts, from Salute Scouts, representatives from SAS, representatives um, from BSAP, uh, there are a lot of troopers, that the next day the results would be announced and it would be Joshua Nakomo, Bishop Mozarewa, Prime Minister Ian Smith. And of course, at 9 o'clock next day, Robert Mugabe was, the results were, were announced. Uh, we actually drove through the streets of Salisbury, the Rhodesian Line Infantry, as a unit. Now, we were fully armed. I mean, more than fully armed. Mm -hmm. And there was a plan. The plan didn't happen. Uh, a sort of counter coup to a different alternative, <laughs> we'll say. Yeah, there was a plan. There was intelligence that was made up. Um, we had been, at that time, our troop, wrecking troop, had been working with Salu Scouts up on the border in Kariba. We'd been in Zambia. Well, we helped SAS blow up the bridges in November, I think it was. Um, we were letting all the terrorists come in. We were not letting any go back into Zambia. And we were on operations there for almost three and a half months. Um, and then we came back and then I went to, uh, I went to medics course for, uh, for training, which is training I wanted to do because I wanted every, everybody in our group could give a drip, do field dressings, do basic, basic medical medicine to keep somebody alive, which was something I wish we would have done in Vietnam. Right, yeah. right. Lessons learned, Right, as they say. What were the uh, the other two jumps that you did? Uh, they were on fire force, regular fire mm -hmm. force things. Yeah, call out, boom. And so, yeah. so while you were there with a the reconnaissance troop, I mean, you were getting called out daily? We were on different missions. We did an, I did an advanced marksmanship course. Uh, some of our guys have been trained by snipers. Two of our, three of our NCOs have been trained by snipers, and they came back and trained us. So 
So it's false, what they call force multipliers now. Mm -hmm. So we were gone for four weeks doing uh, some, um, marksmanship courses. They had, I would, from what I was gathering and my, because I'm just a trooper, so I'm not being told anything. I'd been promised a Lance Corporal, but it didn't happen. That we were going to do an Operation Phoenix in our area, frozen area, and take out the Majibas and take out the intelligence that was being passed to the terrorist forces in the area. So if you could stop that communication, mm -hmm. they can't get organized. That plan never came, never happened. So we were trained at that. And then we go on fire force for four weeks or two weeks, and then scouts would say, we need 12 guys. We'd load up, fly to, uh, fly to Kariba, and then we would start missions into Zambia, going 20, 30 miles into Zambia, working, working our way back. Yeah, that was just normal. I spent a couple new years. For that three years, I was gone every Christmas and New Year's <laughs> in a foreign country. I was in another country. So for three years, how how many times did you come back to the States and how long did you stay? The U.S., in I was in Africa the whole time. For three the years. entire three years? Yeah. Yeah. It's been eight, 18 months with um, uh, Rhodesian Light Infantry. Mm -hmm. And then I spent a year's contract with uh, South African Defense Force. South African Defense Force, I spent the majority of time in count and uh, in Angola. Uh, we did a short two-day stay on the Mozambique border, helping the Mozambique National Resistance Movement. And then we spent the whole time, rest of time in Angola. But before moving on to uh, South yeah. Africa, um, there's just so many uh, colorful characters we were talking a little bit about before the show that you served with in Rhodesia. Right. Uh, that I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on. Uh, we talked about uh, Dennis Crewcamp. Dennis Crowcamp. Crowcamp, your sergeant major. Yes, he was the. He had received a Bronze Cross for Deja in the early '70s as a trooper or a corporal. Uh, was probably one of the highest rated uh, top five salute scouts in the area. Um, he became an instructor in Guello. And then he was instructing us at some of our training phases. And then he came back to training to the RLI, and he became our sergeant major for our troop, which was kind of unheard of that your own troop had its own sergeant major. And he got us a lot of the operations with scouts and, and other people because he had that pull. Um, and then there's other people that, uh, that we knew from uh, Bob McKenzie? Well, Bob McKenzie was the highest rated American captain in SAS. Um, Bob had served with the 101st in Vietnam, was wounded very badly, 70% disabled. And he went as a trooper and became a captain in the SAS. I didn't actually meet Bob until afterwards. Uh, again, he was a captain. I didn't, he didn't talk to me. I didn't talk to him. But, uh, you know, you would see somebody and they would ask you, where, who are you with, the 82nd? Uh, one guy who will remain nameless was um, in the 82nd, went to Raider School like I did, was in SAS, then later on uh, went down south with 6 SAS, did that job, and then he was on the Seychelles job. He, did, he was the... Uh, American who was shot in the Seychelles, the Mike Hoare Seychelles thing, mm -hmm. which I would have gone on, but I wasn't there. 
and yeah. uh, you mentioned a, a guest who was on the show before, uh, John Cronin, right. was like in the same unit as you were. John Cronin was in three three commando. We had this RLI had first first commando, second commando, three commando, and then uh, support support commando. Support commando consisted of recce troop, assault pioneers, mortar troop, and anti tank troop. Um, John had been in um, three commando. He went during scout, scout selection, became an officer in scouts, and was in the group after after that. Yeah. Did uh, did you ever cross paths with uh, John Gardner, Australian? No, I, I him and I have been. I've seen his book. I've read his book later on. Yeah, and cross paths. Yeah, he could have been sitting across from me, blacked up, and I had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you'd see guys and they'd be in completely different uniform, carrying an RPD, and you had sure. You know, we go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask because we, you know, other Americans we've talked about Australians. How many different types of foreign nationals? Like how many? How Ugh. yeah, were there? And what about what percentage of the force did they create? Of which force? Uh, well, of I uh, guess. Uh, so I, okay, you take the ROI. It. I I have heard numbers up to three hundred. Um, there's guys that would come over and stay for six. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. As parents, there's enough to worry about and plenty to figure out alone. So isn't it nice to find answers? To worry less with people who get it. Saving for college is a journey made better when guided by experience. At collegewell.com, we have expert guidance to get you on the right path. From financial planners to financial aid advisors at colleges nationwide. Visit collegewell.com. We're changing the way families feel about and approach college savings. Weeks and they go home. Mm -hmm. They take the gap and they're gone. Um, there's guys that stayed for longer. There's guys that worked BSAP. They worked uh, Special Branch. They were gathering intel. Uh, there's guys that like uh, Bob McKenzie, who was there from '72, I think it was. Wow. Yeah, he went over right after. Um, uh, he got out of the hospital, and then he was with the South was African with, uh, uh, recce. He he went down, took the SAS group down south, and then I believe he served in, with King Tomislav's brigade. Right, yeah, and, and, that, and then he was killed in uh, Sierra, yeah, yeah, he Sierra did that. Leon. Then he was killed in Sierra Leone. Yeah, yeah. Bob Bob's a great a legend, great guy, hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he always carried his arm like this because his arm was all messed up, and he had an airborne tattoo. Yeah, we used, to, we used to get drunk and compare tattoos. I, I had heard that that he that he had a sense of humor. He, oh, he was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you really didn't talk to him. But we talked again about the wings and everything like that. I'd say we had guys from every country within the free world. Um, it was just we had guys from Brazil. We had guys from that been in the Spanish Legion. You had legionnaires. You had uh, uh, guys. I over the guy there, an American guy there that he just had. 
he had braces on. Never been in the military. They got his brake, took his braces off, and and he was he was there with us. Um, so it was it, it depended on what a lot of times what I noticed with Sergeant Major Crow Camp and the other ones is if you had a skill and they could tell whether you'd been in the army or you were going to go in the army or something like that, they would okay. Will you give this class? Mm -hmm. Can you give a class on? radio techniques or how to do this or how to put up your 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 basha or how to do camouflage or how to do what are you looking for when you're doing reconnaissance and then he's like okay you're going to pick out the different things and then they'll okay you're going to instruct the next day you're going to do this stuff like that and then you had Afrikaner guys that when they spoke to you I, to this day i have no idea what they're talking about <laughs> you know but we call it we called it Crunchy, but uh, you know, hell of a soldier, but still can't understand what they're <laughs> It's a very practical way of running a military, isn't it? Oh, it's a great way. If I was going to choose, oh yeah, I'd have no guy. Uh, well, there's one guy I know right now, a uh, friend of mine, last couple of years. We met at something, and he goes, oh, I'm next 32 battalions. Oh, when? And it's when? When did you go with this and that and stuff like that? Oh, okay. I trust him with my life. Mm -hmm. I've done many jobs later on if they know, oh, well, you were in the regiment or you served in SAS or whatever. It's not a fact. Get this mission. Here's your mission. Here's your mission guide. Go for it. You, you don't need to do any more interviews. Right. You're done. Right. You know this. I served, I've had it in South Africa. When we, when we get to South Africa, start talking about that, I'd go and requisition a truck. Or I needed something, and they're looking at me. You know, I'm from San Francisco. I go, well, who are you with? I go, I'm Colonel Brainbox guy. Oh, okay. What else you need? I said, I'll take that, that, that. <laughs> okay, that's fine. What's uh? We talked a little bit about the the end of the Rhodesian conflict, but what was that transition like from you go like physically and I guess emotionally mm -hmm. as well, traveling from Rhodesia to South Africa and joining their armed services? How how did that take place? What happened was the war ended, I mean it literally ended. The next day the South Africans came up and took back all their equipment that they gave the, the Rhodesians. Everything. Everything was gone. Opened up arms room, took everything. People didn't know what to do, they didn't know what they were going. Uh, SAS got it together and they figured okay they would raise a contingent going to South Africa. That was 6th Recce. Um, so scouts did the same thing. That would be five recce. Okay, they, what are we going to do? And then guys, the South Africans said, well, wait a second. You have all these combat trained people. Uh, we'd like to recruit you into 32 Battalion. 32 Battalion is a group that after the Civil War in Angola, they all ended up on the southern border of Angola, 10,000 troops, and they didn't know what to do with them. Colonel Bradenbach said, well, I'll form them into my own unit. And he did. That was 32 Battalion. Colonel Bradenbach is a, the founder of South African Special Ops. A legend. Yeah. He's, it, he is actually the person, and if you read the book, Dogs of War with Frederick Forsyth, mm -hmm. of those four South Africans, he is the leader. He is that guy. He is that person. Colonel told me that at a bribe. 
in person, so we know it's got to be true. But yeah, it's uh, so that's how 32 was, was started. So a number of RLI guys, literally, we all went down to the embassy and we're sitting there with newspapers, you know, trying to be real cool. Right. And the South Africans are interviewing us. And so, okay, well, what's your rank now? And you'll get this rank and you'll get this amount of money when you arrive and you'll do your year's contract and you'll be paid this. And, and then when you leave, when your contract is done, you'll be paid this amount of money and see you whenever you guys can get down there. And literally, in our commando, I'd say 40% of the guys left that weekend, and they were gone. Really? When the 32 Battalion, 30 Battalion got in a huge punch-up, and uh, a couple guys got killed. And then we were getting letters back saying, okay, if you come, bring bring some more equipment. We need, no, we need more night vision. We need more this. We need more that. We need other stuff. And so it's okay. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go to 32 Battalion. That was my my idea because I got to get money to go to eventually go home. And then Sergeant Major Crocamp comes up. We got a little bit of a piss up going on at the pub. Each commando had its own pub. So we, And he goes, you know, Ken, there's this new unit starting. Just what you've been looking for. It's an airborne unit. I go, man. He goes, okay. And he started, he goes, but you got to pass selection. I'm 30 years old, man. <laughs> I want to go see selection. Right, right. He goes, now you got to go. He goes, we'll do it. I said, okay. He says, man, you got to get down there within the next couple months. I said, man, they haven't released me out of the Army. You know, it's like, oh, okay. So I had to write a letter to Bob Mugabe, please let me out. I don't want to be here. And I got a response, and by a certain period of time, I could leave. So I was like, oh, okay. And I talked three of my other, two of my other friends in it, and uh, I we got on the bus. I loaded all my bags. I got still have my original Ber Bergen, which is a parachute. You can attach it to your uh, D rings underneath. It's a great Bergen that that I got. And I, a bunch of I just happened to throw some Rhodesian camouflage in there, um, some other stuff, and took a bus. Got to the border. And the border guard goes, what's your kit? I go, it's that, that, that. And he goes, puts a chalk line on it. He goes, okay, thanks, get on the bus. Good hunting. I go, fine. We went to Pretoria. Um, Pretoria, the next day, we reported in. They said, okay, got to do an interview. I go, okay. Did the interview, went out, and that's the first time I met Sergeant Major McLeese. Peter McAleese. Pete. Go up. Sergeant, as I said, Sergeant Major McLeese. He's <laughs> Scottish, tough. I have no idea what he said to me. <laughs> I can barely understand him now. And Colonel Brainbot. Here's this guy, this soldier, Portuguese, toned skin, steel, steel blue eyes. And I'm going, man, that, that he means business. It's, and he goes, it's so interesting, too. Wasn't his brother an anti-war activist yes. and a poet? Completely different. Yeah. Completely different person. Colonel Braden's box says, I'm making this unit. You think you're up to it? Okay, I'm looking at your background. Hope you make it. We'll see you in a month. And it was like, okay. <laughs> and they put us in, they, they gave us our uniforms. 
And then they put us at this little house and they said, okay, you're leaving tomorrow. Here's your kit. Make sure it's all clean for tomorrow. And they gave me a folding butt Afghan that was in horrible condition. And they gave me a AK and I had my own pistol that I brought with me. And we had uh, an R4 that was still in its plastic container. We had to clean all the cosmoline off it, get a brand new 10 magazines. And then we got in this truck and we headed back to the South African Zimbabwe border. And that's where we trained for eight and a half weeks. This was the selection course? This No, this was the course before selection. Really? Course. Yeah. Yeah. We, Sergeant Major McLeish trained us every day. And I know what incident you're going to ask about. The, the Valium? I know. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me about that. We had to carry a box of ammunition to the firing range, which is about two Ks away. Our accommodations, to say the least, were sparse, which means there were none. We were on the border. I actually slept in a sewer pipe and a large concrete pipe because I, then I wouldn't have to sleep on the ground. And that's what we, that's what we did. We were in a closed area and we had to carry this ammo box to where we trained or where our shooting was. And we did fast action, immediate action drills all the way there. We, oh we'd stop at right center, contact front, contract right. You had to put boom, 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 carrying your loaded weapons, loaded FN, the folding butt FNs that we had to clean before the night and stuff like that. And then we learned that first day that you shoot up all your ammunition that day so you don't have to carry it back. Right. <laughs> and so you, you learn. Right. And then it's like three weeks in, I think we'll take down two cases of ammo per person. So then you figure out between three guys, you're going to carry this, and you kind of figure out ways that you can do it. So you start thinking, okay, Corporal got it. These are your three guys. How are you going to get them there? What are you going to do? What would you think? And then at nighttime, we would have classes. Okay, when we're 2Ks down at the second bend, what's there? Well, there's a tree over here, over here, this type of thing. And then we did that. And that was when the incident happened that Sergeant McLeese was ill one day. Because he was such a vigorous sergeant major that... He, he was a t he was tough. <laughs> yeah. And he needed a break. <laughs> he needed a break. And, and he wrote in his book and, and we talked about it when we yeah. interviewed him yeah. that it was formation one morning and like his knees were quaking, couldn't yeah. stand up. <laughs> and yeah. so they put him on bed rest. Bed rest for the day. And the, he said the troopers were very diligent in bringing him, like, Cokes and tea. And he always liked his tea in the morning. Uh -huh. And we had the black tea club and the white tea club. Because I like I like regular, I don't like tea with the condensed milk and all that stuff. So we would all, and we cooked our own food. So there was nobody else there except us. The 15 guys, I think it was. Because three of them we kicked out because they were terrorists from Italy. That's another story. Italian terrorists? Holy yeah. shit. Yeah, they were some weird, strange thing. And they found out that they were they were actually terrorists. Uh -huh. And so they were they were immediately taken by 
the South African Special Branch. Yikes. Yeah. So, and Sergeant Major was sick that day and had to, had to do a sick day. And it was great for us because we got to reclean our weapons and sleep in. But he overheard some of some of the people talking, and I will I will not say who, how it happened, and who did it. But he suspects someone was putting Valium in his drinks oh, yeah. to <laughs> take him out of action. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say it was a recce trooper, but I knew who it was. <laughs> so so somebody was. It wasn't just his suspicion. There there may have been some malfeasance going on. Um. I have no idea. <laughs> I will not confirm and or deny. So there's eight weeks of training under the sergeant major, and then there was an actual selection course after the training. No, then we went to parachute school. Okay. Um, we went to parachute school, and that's when I made a big mistake. We went to parachute school, and on that afternoon, I decided to get an airborne, U.S. airborne haircut. So I buzz cut. Nothing. And Captain Botus, who was one of our uh, officers that was training us, trying to teach us Afrikaans, took high offense to me getting myself and the other American who was with us an airborne haircut. So he ordered me to get airborne airborne haircut every weekend for, for six months. <laughs> but I got him. I so we did. So all of a sudden, at this parachute course in Bloomington, these American, these foreigners show up to do the paracourse. And it's just a refresher for, for us. We've been through two, at least two jump schools. And it's in Afrikaans. <laughs> so they're doing, they're doing the course and they're doing the formation and we're kind of laughing and, and then we got in trouble for that and then we got in a fight in the Blimpies and that was normal. It happened all the time, and then we did the course, and uh, we did nine, uh, nine or ten jumps from the uh, from a DC three, which is the pictures that you, that you've seen, and they have these great uh, jumpsuits that you wear, and then they have this thing they give you what's called a marble. All it is is a concrete block, and you're supposed to hold it over your head and do all. Well, we've been carrying ammo boxes for. You know, eight weeks. What did we care with this little marble thing? You know, so they, not that they were trying to break us down, but right. with the younger paratroopers, okay, these guys are up, they know what's up, they're in shape, they're doing it. So we did, we did the parachute course. We got our South African parachute wings, told to take our boots, get on the plane, get the hell out of the area, which is what we did. And then we started selection course. Mm-hmm. Selection course was in the Drakensberg Mountains, and that was going to last as long as Sergeant Major McLeese wanted to make it last. There was no ending date. We had no idea. So what punishment did he exact on you? For the first four days, every three people carried four, four boxes of ammunition. And there are 35.5 kgs, a little over 70-something pounds. You have all your stuff, and first thing we do is break down our weapons, throw them in, throw them in the in the Bergen, and you have to get up to the top of that hill, which is way up there, and it's just it's just a constant go go, and they say, we'll give you a point. You have this many hours to get there. Go, that's it, and you reason you're in your little group, and you start off, 
And then after th three days it was, he would take the ammo boxes and it was more speed marches until you're, you're spent. You're just, your mind is gone. And that first day we actually had three South Africans and two other guys that were coming down from the RLI. The RLI had just disbanded and they had come like two days late, two days before the course started and they couldn't make it the first half kilometer. Because they, they weren't in a physical shape right. to take it. So they were going to go on the third selection course. Was, was this the first selection that he had run? For we this? were the second You selection. were the second? We were the second. And selection. when you say there was no end date, does, does that mean he didn't tell you? Or does that mean he was just kind of making it up as he went along? No. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He was told by Colonel Braidenbach, make it tough. So like, like, you, like you guys did in SAS. Mm -hmm. Make it tough. Make it physical. Make it mine. Give them, give them problems. Give them mm -hmm. things. Give them this. Give them that. And that, and that's what he. That's so you, so you think on your own. Because we're from various backgrounds, engineers. Ex if you were an ex Sleuth Scout or ex SAS, you didn't have to do do selection course. Crow Camp. He goes. Well, I. Or he, he didn't have to do it. He goes. No, no. I'm doing it. I'm gonna be there with you. Mm -hmm. I'm right next to you, dying just like you are. But then at the end, yeah, he didn't have to do it. So on my selection course, I was the oldest person. I was 30 at the time. Yeah, I was the oldest person. So you don't know. You can go walk down next hill and you're done. Right. And at any time, they can say, you're finished. You're not finished. You're this, which hap happened at the end to, and to me and two other guys. So... After seven days going into Drakensburg on these little mountains and little trails, and we're doing it, you got to get over here, and you got to move back. Oh, you just got there, we gave you the wrong direction. And it's a lot of miscommunications, like SF. A lot of miscommunications, a lot of this, that, and that. Okay. So the last, finally get to the last day, we're all, we're just about done. And they got one of the guys from Who Done the First of course, a Frenchman. And he says, okay, leave your stuff there. We're going to go on a little run. Well, where are we running to? We're running. Okay. And then we'd run. And he said, okay, touch that rock. And we come back, run back. And Sergeant Major would say, okay, did you touch rock? Yes. Yes, Sergeant Major. Where did you touch it? Well, I touched it on top. No, no, I got to touch it on the right side. Okay. Run up and do it again. And that was a couple times. Well, meanwhile, I was with two other people. And Captain Botus would come out and appear, and he would tell me, he'd say, Corporal Godet, you got to keep up with those guys. I go, sir, okay. He goes, if you don't, I'm going to drop you right now, and then you're going you're gonna to drive a truck. I go, oh, okay. So I go on, carry on, and he goes, no, Corporal Godet, better keep up. you got to keep up with these guys. So I yelled out to Corporal Griffiths and Corporal Price, stand fast. Mark time, and they got it. We all got in step, and we all marched in, and we, we, we had passed. Mm -hmm. We were given our berets with our insignias on it, and uh, then the second group came down, and we're all sitting there going, two. You got to make two runs. It's got It's it's. You're almost done. Mm -hmm. It's almost, almost finished. And then we graduated eleven guys, and the next day they called us for operations. So our feet are bugged. 
were buttered. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ground beef. And then we went to the Mozambique border and did an operation for two days with the Mozambique National Resistance Movement. Renamo? Renamo. Yeah. yeah. And before getting into that, what was Pathfinder Company for people who have never heard of it before? Okay. After 78 in Kasinga, when uh, Colonel Bradenbach did the jump with the Paris. Mm -hmm. They needed they needed a group that would be able to go in, sit there, work in small person teams, two man teams, collect collect information, and bring the Pathfinders in. Well, they didn't really have a long term Pathfinder service within the South African Army. Well, he's got this whole group of combat people in Rhodesia. And the Rhodesia and South Africans worked together for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. So, but SAS was busy. So he says, well, wait, I can get this other group. I can, I'll make a group, form a group, I'll train them. And then that's what we were doing. And then we were training Pathfinder, Pathfinder techniques and what to do. And we would be given the mission in case we ever did it to be able to spearhead anything later on. Later on, after a month after I left, they did a combat jump that Sergeant Major McLeese led with the Pathfinder group. I wished I, I would have stayed a month to get that to get that jump because mm. you change your wings to silver wings instead of the bronze wings. So, what was the job up on the Mozambique border that you got a, a day after selection? A group of Mozambique National Resistance fighters going to infiltrate in. Mm -hmm. We had to stay with them, make sure their kit, and look at their kit to make sure nothing on their kit said South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and we take our person, and we're looking at all their cool, brand new weapons that they had. And it was like, man, we, you know. And of course, they're Portuguese and can't speak any with them. But they would have shoe tins that had made in South Africa, so we'd scratch it off, and we checked every pr person. Of course, they were under a couple recce guys. And the recce guys are too cool to check everything, so they used us. And it was it was good. It was great. It was it was there. And some of us had already been to Mozambique, so we know exactly what was going on. There wasn't any need for uh, super secrecy. And then we find out that our helicopter had been shot at a couple times as we passed over where we were. Where we physically landed, I have no idea to this day. <laughs> But so you guys were infiltrating this, you know, proxy force. We were bringing this group of, right. I, I know it might have been 200 guys. Yeah. And and we were just checking them. Yeah. In the last couple of days. Yeah. The, the larger situation that, you know, South Africa found itself in that time, they were fighting in where, Nabimbia, Angola. Uh, right. In the Caprivi Strip in Southwest Africa, we were fighting Swapo. And then in December of 1980, uh, we were able to bring a group with uh, Sergeant Major Crowcrump in charge, and I was with that group, the first group of Pathfinders that went to Southwest Africa. And we did a deception plan of vehicles being ambushed, and we we were doing our own, making them ambush us, and then we right counter ambush. Up. Yeah, counter counter ambush, take them out, and then a month later, the rest of the Pathfinders came in. And that's when we did a big combat operation in Kamato, where, um, you know, I was with the lead element. We found a base camp, and then the rest of the groups came in. And that's when Sergeant Major, um, Sergeant Major McLeese 
did the whole thing with the uh, ran across the field and he, yeah he had to like rally the troops rally like, the troops yeah um, we f found the base camp we assaulted the base camp uh, we were taking heavy fire I mean it was it was intense they had 14 fives down low just anti-aircraft guns on any you. aircraft guns on us and wow. it was it was just amazing what was happening and when I first saw him, I looked up and I saw him and I saw two people run across. And again, we're not looking for booby traps because I never run, ran into booby traps there. So we're going, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. And when they brought in the other pairs, Sergeant Major runs by me and I go, welcome back to Angola. And he kind of looks at me and he goes, what's going on, Yank? I go, straight ahead, straight ahead. So and they were moving. And as the paratroopers got into the defense line, the firing became more, and they wanted to capture Chinese 75 recoilless, and they linked over to get it, and one of the guys got killed, they got shot in the face. Lieutenant went to rescue him. He grabbed him, he got shot in the back, and then every, somebody yelled retreat, and everybody retreated, and they were haphazardly running, and Sergeant Major got up and said, paratroopers do not run from terrorists. <laughs> Grabbed the lieutenant, put him on his back, carried him back. Meanwhile, we did overwatch until he got back, and then we moved back. And we evacuated everybody in an orderly manner, and then they mortared us, and two more guys got killed, I think it was. And then we went in the next day and kicked their ass to go yeah. to camp. <laughs> that was it. I, I'm trying to remember if it's the same operation that Peter describes in his book. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today where uh, one of the, one of your soldiers got his foot blown off, I think, by a landmine. That was later on. Oh, that was later on. That was later on when um, I'd actually come back to the training team. I was in our last month, and they did Op Protea, and uh, Dave Barr, who had rigged one of our land cruisers with uh, double, double 50 caliber machine guns, uh, they ran over a landmine, and he got his, he got his leg, legs messed up, Eventually, they reamputated, but Colonel Brainbox saved him from burning alive in the vehicle. Oh, wow. oh yes, he he reached in there and grabbed him. And the signaler Graham Gilmore, the guy that wrote the book, he was wounded. He got his foot messed up. But uh, and the driver, one of our uh, one of the American guys with me, he remembers. No, it was it was absolute. They were surrounded by fire, and the vehicle Jesus. blew up. It was tough. Yeah. Yeah. Any other significant operations that stand out for you? Uh, you went to Angola too, didn't you? Yes, I was in Angola for almost four months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you would you would just go right across what's called a cut line. It's just yep. a, it's just a, a like a, a fire, like a fire break. And you would go into Angola, and I thought it was interesting is the, they would tell us in the intelligence briefing well, don't worry, there aren't any tanks there, there aren't any of this, and the Cubans only come so far down. 
And I'm going, Cubans? What do you mean the Cubans? <laughs> and then we found pictures of tanks, and when I got pictures of T-72 tanks, and they said, no, no, they weren't there. I go, they're in my album. What do you mean they're not there? So it was, yeah, we were in Angola a long time. And we worked with 32 Battalion in Angola. What, what year was this in Angola? Uh, this was 1981. Was, uh, was CIA in there yet by 81? Or does that come a few CIA years, a was few years later? CIA was there until the 80s. The late 80s. Yeah, because yeah. they had a pretty substantial operation. And there. we were told not to talk to any Americans. The American ambassador arrived, and they kept us. They kept the American guys completely away, oh, yeah. so that they wouldn't hear us, talk us, anything like that. We could see them over the talking. But yeah. Like, no, you guys don't. Just keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. You know. But no. From what I understand, later things that I've read, they were deeply involved with UNITA. We work with yep. UNITA. UNITA was a great organization run by Zavimbi. It was they were good troops. That intersects with the uh, episode we did with Baz, who yeah. was uh, yeah agency guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know he is. Yeah. So it was uh, it was it was a time. Again, quoting. Bob McKenzie, it was time to be a soldier. Mm -hmm. All this training and everything that I had been doing the last first 10 years of my military, it was like, it was all coming to, to perdition. It was all exactly what I was taught. And it works. You know? Small unit maneuver warfare. Small unit, just give me two guys and I can get it done. Yeah. Which later paid off in other things that I did. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and McKenzie and what Tim Bax—they were guy, they were working for what was the two black homelands that were being established in South Africa? Trans guy, yeah, yeah, because they were working for Ronry Daly, for Colonel, right, for right, for Colonel Daly, yeah, yeah. So a lot going on in that part of the world at that time. It's it's all you would get you would get somebody to work with before, and they would start something else, and they knew exactly who to pick. Mm -hmm. Of exactly the man that you wanted in charge of supply and in charge of this and in charge of that. It was it was the way to get things done. How did things wind down for you and with the with the SADF? Um, my contract was done. Mm -hmm. um, when I went down to get my pay, I found I was actually getting extra pay. I think it was ten dollars a day for every day I was overseas. Every day I was in Angola, which was very good because I told the other guys, "Man, we're getting." Get more money than we than we thought, and then I bought a ticket, came home to San Francisco, uh, helped raise my son, and eventually did some other adventures uh, later on with some other ex-military guys that I knew, uh, recovery of children yeah. that were overseas, and uh, did that for a period of time, and now I have uh, my own private investigation company in California, and that's that's life. So yeah, you know, so you, that's great. You came back for you know family reasons, and also you know some of the writing that you did for right. for Bob Brown and yeah, others. I'd like to write more. I'm just waiting for the right time. I know. I was going to ask you, like, have you ever thought about writing like a memoir, writing your your story? Because there's a lot there. I have. There are just some people, not that I would name, but just some situations from Vietnam that I'm um, I'm going to wait until. Those people are no longer with us because they were very things. Some, some things that happened that were very will always stay with me, mm -hmm. and um, I think there was some bad leadership 
So I'm not going to get into it with. But those are things that you would want to write about. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You just want I, to do the courtesy of, of. Courtesy of not naming names. Right. It just Because I've seen other people in charge that did it completely different. Right. That could have been done this way. Right. There's so many things we weren't told in Vietnam right. that I think that we should have been told in Vietnam. Right. Yeah. How did you get into the uh, child recovery aspect of the private security uh, after your time in, in the military? A friend of mine who was in that business for a long time, uh, we had known each other way back in the 70s, and uh, he got into a, sp a little spot of bother, as they say. Um, he had uh, things that went wrong on one of his missions, and he was uh, being detained by um, a law enforcement agency, and he was spending some time in jail, and he needed somebody to help with his company, so he asked me to help him out, and I did, and I ended up uh, going over and doing a job in uh, in Africa, and doing a job, a couple jobs in Central America, and I got some successful recoveries for a number of people, and people that still send me Christmas cards and say thanks to me. And, That's you know, fantastic. It's good. Yeah. It it makes you feel good that, it, again, you're able to make a plan, do a plan. You can get it done. You don't need all this super-duper equipment. You can – it can't it can happen. Yeah. I, I know that because we've talked to a couple other people, uh, Baz and then uh, Jeff and Nick, and, mm. like, part yeah. of – you know, like, part of that – world i guess is you're not just doing it for charity like you can't just fly to africa on your own dime because it can cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars right uh, it's astronomical yeah yeah you know figure there are times i get a call i'd call my wife and say i'm taking you out to lunch where we live and i'd be gone i'd be gone for eight weeks mm-hmm you know, and you got you got to do the reconnaissance. You got mm -hmm. to, how are we going to get him in? How are we going to get him out? And I guarantee you, no matter what you plan, it's not going to happen. Right, Murphy's law. <laughs> right, right. Every it, it that's a constant. But then you're like, okay, now what? You know, it took us weeks to find a picture, of kid. and then I did the, I did the video on one job, and I got the kid walking literally behind me, right over the wall. They're right oh, there. Yeah. And I'm being like Arab reading my name, <laughs> my paper backwards, and make sure everything's going. But yeah, they literally walked on a seawall, right? He picked them up, walked them, put them on the other side. I go, okay, we got them. And usually no equipment that never works. Yeah. You know, I, got, I probably throw more walkie-talkies in the Mediterranean than people would ever know. <laughs> So you just got to... Could you tell us about a few of these rescue yeah. missions that you did? Uh, it sounds like there's some interesting details uh, in these jobs you did over the years. Um, well, the last part. one that I did, from the time I picked, we got... Oh, well, when the client was brought across the border, my boss, my boss's wife forgot to tell me that she was six months pregnant. So my whole escape plan was gone. 
I had to change it to be able to, okay, got to adapt. Mm -hmm. We adapt, and I give my complete credit to that, to, her, to the mom, because she spent hours in a car hiding under a hat so she could ID the daughter to make sure we were looking at the right person. Right. Um, she did. We got him. We trailed this guy for over a New Year's at a party and all types of stuff. And come to find out, the child had been had been be, being taken to a day for a kindergarten kitty mm -hmm. care, and we were actually whining and dining the driver of the bad guy. We were so we knew everything that he was going to do, and we figured it out. And then we did some more surveillance and figured out our time factor of what we did. And we all dressed up, we all dressed the same, we all looked the same, wore sunglasses, white shirts, State Department tie, everything. And we took the child off the street, gave him to her mother, and we were out of the country in 28 minutes. And I think I hold the record of the fastest recovery. And they were, from what I understand, because I wasn't on the team that stayed there, if they were running around with machine guns looking for looking. us. Looking. Oh, they were, he was pissed. Yeah. Yeah. These are like some pretty dangerous people in some cases. These are some heavy duty, heavy, yeah, and we're not armed. We have nothing. Right. I used to carry an ass baton. Yeah. That's it. And you're either assuming identities or you're blending in, you're being a local bad guy, you're dealing with absolute corrupt people. Right. And, uh, you know, I might be in the middle of Tangiers one night and just walking around. I used to walk. In Pakistan, I would walk from the Marriott Hotel to the Sheraton Hotel, one up a block, down a block, stay there, make a contact, and come back. Right next to the American Embassy. And after we left, two weeks later, Americans came in, they pulled into the Sally Port, and they took out six guys right then and there. Jeez. And then they mortared exactly at the table where we used to meet our contact. And it's like, okay, we've got to leave this area for a while. It's a little too warm. Yeah. <laughs> so these were usually two man or like one man, one woman man. operations. Uh, we use female sometimes mm -hmm. if we if it's if if we can, because usually they will you know they're used for certain purposes, and we would get female agents, British agents, people. And I had some good people. I had some Brit intelligence guys that had worked with uh, the regiment and different places, and guys that we guys I knew that if I got in trouble. I could immediately get on my communication, and they would be—they'd be on their way to me. Yeah, there was no, you know, it, it might happen, it won't happen, it will happen. They're going to be there. Yeah, and uh, we did—we filmed one for um, a program called America Tonight of the whole—the whole thing, how we did it, and again, hundreds of thousands of dollars, of what it eventually cost, and of course, things went wrong. But that's 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 all part of the course. What, what was the diciest one you think you did? Um, the one in Central America, where they where they where they were chasing us. They're searching for you. Yeah, where they're there. According to my guy, they were searching for us with machine guns, and they were pissed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because generally, it, or I'm going to ask you, but mm -hmm. is it generally true that if if these men have the means to take a child from the U.S. to another right. country, or whatever that. They're generally men of means in whatever country they're on. They're in. Oh yeah, and it's it's the uncustodial parent, 
And a lot of times, if we're able to, we'll check them with the embassy and just kind of let them know. You know, if we happen to be knocking at your door tomorrow night, are you going to let us in? Oh, sure. No problem. You know, you, the head of the company knew the contacts. He'd worked in the embassy. He knows who to talk to. You know mm -hmm. who to see, who the SRO is, who the SAC is, who the person in charge is. And if all of a sudden I come, hey, I'm here. Okay, you're set. We yeah. just got to get them there. And, and maybe it is worth explaining to people out there in the world that if something like this happens to you, your child gets kidnapped and taken overseas, as you know, of course, there there aren't a lot of um, mechanisms for the parents. They have to call a Ken Gaudette or a Nick Brockhausen or a Jeff Miller or a Michael Taylor to go and recover this kid. Correct. Because the State Department isn't sending like a strike team to go get them. No. they They will be hands off. Because they have to be hands-on. So it's going to be the people, the private sources. They're going to be the people that have the, the skill and the uh, chutzpah <laughs> to get out there and get the job done and say, oh, okay. I mean, I've literally sat next to as close as you guys are to the unauthorized person who took their kids mm -hmm. and they have no idea. Well, yeah, I have no idea how it was. I did one job in the Middle East and we knew the kids were coming to the airport and I dressed up in my kaffa, had my thing and I'm standing <laughs> right next to him. My boss calls me. I, I call my, as we didn't have cell phones, so I got to call him on the phone. Where are you at? I go, they're there. They're on the plane. They're going in. They're set. And this FBI goes, well, who's not? I says, I got a guy standing next to him right now. He goes, well, he's not an American, is he? And he goes, oh, yeah, he's not an American. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. You know, and then you're on the next, the next flight out. And then you may never see them again, or you might see them at a reunion, or now we have Facebook. And, right, right. You know, it's. It's good. It, it, it's a good feeling. You know, I say all the crap that I've been through, there are some good times and some bad times. Yeah, I mean, what do you think when you reflect back on this life as, as a sort of professional adventurer, Ken, that, and using all of these skills that you developed in the military and eventually using them to rescue children? I mean, it's pretty incredible. It's a complete turnaround for me. It was hard to watch what was going on in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. uh -huh. knowing that there are guys... Just give us a plane. Yeah. We'll get it done. It's You guys make it way too difficult. And I know the Intel guys, and I know the people that were working on some of these things. Good job. Good job. Just go to this. Go to that. But it's also at the point of, if I go up to you and I say, we're leaving in two minutes, that's it. Do not call. Give me your cell phone. Give me everything. And all of a sudden, I turn around the corner, and I'm gone. Well, i got to call somebody. No, it's not happening. Right. We're going now. Right. And then you go. Because that's the only way you can get done. Right. It, it's, it's a good part of life. It's, it's good now to just relax and to think about it. <laughs> you know, you, you've been trying to get me on here for two years, yeah. three years. <laughs> so uh, eventually, things get done. But, you know. And I'm glad there's still good friends out there to this day. Yeah. Yeah, this network of uh, uh, this motley crew uh, that you stay in touch with to this to day. To say the least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we get together at reunions and we reflect and we 
you know, we're thankful for, uh, number one, we're still here. And number two, we can still have the, the gumption to get the job done. You know, having been in Vietnam and dealing with the U.S. public during that time, and then also, you know, having done everything that you did and really getting no recognition for it over the years, there's no such thing as social media back then, things like that. How do you feel about, I'd say, most of the positive attention that veterans are getting now? Do you think it's a little too much? Do you think that it's well-deserved? Do you think that, like, we, we, our generation, not necessarily Jack and I, but our generation, do you, yeah, what do you think of that, I guess, is my question. I don't think it's never too much. People, majority of people, and I understand that, do not understand what it's like you're looking at these soldiers now that have 12, 15 deployments. And it's like, my God, you're gone from your country, you're from, thing, from everything that's that long. I go, up to, I go up to a soldier and I, you know, I can, like I, the National Guardsmen that were at uh, uh, Grand Central, I'll go up and I'll see you had an SF patch on. I go, who are you with in group? You know, I said, man, 50 years, you're going to look like me, dude. <laughs> yeah. And he laughs, and I said, thank you. I said, thanks a lot. Who are you with? And, you know, somebody says, well, something in Iran or something in Afghanistan. I say, yeah, I did Overwatch over here. And it's just, you're not, it's not forgotten, and it's just, I don't expect anything out of anybody unless you were the guy standing right next to me. I know what you did. Right. we were there. Right. I know what this person did. As far as trying to explain it, I can't. But when that, I tell them, when you get in trouble, I know when you'll be on the phone. Just tell me when and where, if it's possible. And now it's at the point, I can't do that. I don't do these things anymore, but I can put you in touch with somebody that can. Right. You know, and they'll, you know, could you imagine organizing something? I said, well, when you get off the plane, um, this person's going to meet you and he'll have a vehicle for you. He'll have everything you need. Okay, got it. Uh, on a word, it's mm -hmm. not contract, or it's not this, right. or... Nope, we're good. We got it. Guys, uh, thank you for joining us on the show today. I want to give a shout-out to our sponsors for this show. Uh, the first one today is Par Weber. They make watches. They are uh, American-made uh, and assembled in Switzerland, and they have a continuously-on illumination system that you don't need to recharge or, or put new batteries in for three to four years. It's a really nice, hefty watch. I hope you guys will go and check it out. They're based out of Chicago. And if you use the uh, promotion code when you go to buy one of these watches, Team House, at checkout, you will get free shipping. And what's the, the website? It's uh, parweber.com. It's actually parweber.com slash the Team House. We have our own URL. Rweber.com slash the Team House. Awesome. The Team House or no, team, team House? Team House, Team House, sorry, one word. Yeah, it's up on screen. Yeah, and I forgot my watch. I was wearing it yesterday and left <laughs> it on my nightstand, as as can be believed. Um, Dave, can you hit them with uh, ATAX? Absolutely. Our so sponsor? our other sponsor is ATAC Fitness or Adiclete. Now, what these folks do is they put together a really nice... Um, Really nice kits to for you know for your train ups for selections or just basically if you want to stay fit swimming in the ocean swimming in a pool, um, they sell these nice rigid fins uh, open heel uh, vented uh, 
really, really nice fins that come with booties if, if you order them. They have both uh, the, uh, the smaller mask and then the full volume mask if you're doing a type of selection that requires you to, you know, fill your mask and then purge it. A um, little snorkel to get that and purge it. And also learning how to breathe. I mean, if, if you haven't done any type of underwater work before, learning how to use a snorkel uh, is a good way to ensure that you don't get claustrophobia like during your train up, during Shark Week, things like that. And then they also give you a, a couple little lines, which are really good, because you've got to be able to tie these underwater, guys. And I'm messing this up, but nice little bowlins and square knots and all your other things in your lines. So check out our friends at ATAC Fitness. That's A-T-A-C Fitness.com um, for all your training needs. And what's our deal Team with them? 10. And use Team 10 as your promo code. To get 10% To get 10% off. off. And one other thing. The Team House, we are announcing our Instagram giveaway. Um, if you, so I, the post should be up, I believe. Uh, and please like the post about our giveaway. Follow us on Instagram at uh, the.team.house. Share the post in your story and tag us in it. And then if you tag your friend in a comment, each tagged friend in a separate comment, represents a giveaway entry so if you want to enter multiple times just multiple uh tags in different entries each tag must be done in a separate comment um and we'll be selecting and announcing the three winners live on next friday's show and what do you get everybody wants to know what you get right we'll be giving away a team house hoodie a team house t-shirt and a team house coffee mug and i figure that what we'll do is write all those names down yeah. each time and we'll pull them live here on the show and uh we, we don't have anything to do with this book, but if you've been interested in what we're talking about with Ken here today, um, Ken, you sent me this book. Right. You signed it for me a few years back. Thank you for that, by the way. My pleasure. And um, this is a really cool full-color book about Pathfinder Company by Graham Gilmore. Graham Gilmore, yeah. And uh, you contributed to the book as well, didn't you? Yes. I have a number of pictures there and uh, the mentions and we talked about some different stories and things like that in the book yeah you signed this for me in 2014 ken right i know it's it's still available um through uh i don't know if i can say it on the amazon yeah yeah the, the mighty zon you can go check it out yeah uh, uh and what and what are you working on these days where can people find you yeah if, where can people find your pi service it's uh, in napa california mm -hmm. i do criminal defense work in napa california and uh my wife works at one of the larger wineries there nice and that's where i'm uh, that's where i'm there on base just uh i think if they put something or put me on google they'll come up with me some some way i lived in napa for a short while i was working up, up at vacaville Oh, oh look. that's way up. That's up hot, hot park north. But yeah, yeah, the old prison. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been there. I've done interviews there. <laughs> yeah. So, Ken, as we wrap this up today, I mean, are there any concluding thoughts? Anything you think people should know about the the wars in Southern Africa at the time, or in Vietnam, or what's going on today? What, do, what, what would you want to pass on to people? That. There will always be conflict. Let's get, let's go in. Let's get the job done. We saw what a hundred guys could do on horseback. Right. The idea that we've been there, we've been there before. Let's forget that. Let's 
support the troops, continue the mission. Let's let this, let's get the soldiers, the Air Force, and the guys that are in the thick of it. When you know we've been on the tip of the spear, let's get it done. Don't hold us back. You've trained us. You've given us your confidence. Let let's go. I mean, look what we did with uh, the, you know. Uh, Osama and the rest of these people. I wish we could wish listen to intelligence more. Because if I'm bringing you back a piece of intel and then I, you go, okay, that's fine, and then it goes wrong. I told you. Mm -hmm. So let's let's just just support what's going on, and that's uh, that's all I can say. And shout out to my friends all over the world, Bruce Banner. Don Richards, other other guys, Jim Burgess in Thailand that I know he's going to give me a bad time, <laughs> but uh, the Pathfinders that I serve with, yeah. good. And good. I, I'd like to thank your wife also, who's here in the studio <laughs> with us and has been very patient with us as we uh, we tell all these war stories. Um, so next Friday we'll be back at our regularly scheduled time of 8 p.m. with James Lawler who is a uh, former CIA officer, worked in the counter-proliferation office. He had a big part in taking apart the AQ Con network. So we'll be back next Friday with him. And until then... Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, thank right. you for joining us in the studio. This is great. Yeah. My pleasure. It's been awesome. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I'm so glad it worked out. Finally got me. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in touch. And uh, thank you, everyone. We'll see you next Friday. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.